This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to Tau Unbound. Um, I'm Ido Aharoni, your host for Tel Aviv's official English language podcast. And today I'm very, very happy to host a legendary Professor Daniel Bartal, who's now Professor Emeritus. Welcome to our show. Welcome. I am very happy to be here. You know, before we started the recording, I told you that I often uh, quoted you and your uh, important work in my work as a diplomat over the years, especially talking about the collective mindset of the Israeli society, which is what I'd like to talk to you right, today, right. Uh, especially in light of the um, uh, election results in Israel, the fifth election cycle that we've had in three and a half years. But before that, you have an interesting background. You were born in Tajikistan, in Dushanbe. Tell us, how did you end up there? <laughs> it's not me. My parents uh, were are Polish Jew, and uh, in September 1939, they decided uh, to escape and pass uh, to the Soviet Union. And moving there towards Ural, and then towards the Tajikistan, uh, I was born in Stalinabad at that time, Dushaben, and after the war, they returned back to Poland. So you grew up in Poland? I grew up in Poland 11 years, and then I, uh, my family immigrated to Israel. So what you say, it's a Gomulka immigration. You're, you're one of the Gomulka, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And 57. And you are considered a refugee, basically. You were a refugee. Uh, yeah, you can label it yeah. in this term, yeah. That's important because your work has a lot to do with the geopolitics of the of the Middle East. Absolutely. And and the geopolitics of the Middle East is the story of, of groups of, of uh, refugees. Absolutely. You know, true. Yes. And so tell us a bit about your, your academic career. How did you end up doing what you do, which is basically being... The, the psychologist of, of a society. You're dealing with social psychology. So, you know, I really did not uh, begin with this, but I had a very good education because I was, uh, during my doctoral study, a part of a group which was led by legendary, really legendary, Paul Lazarsfeld, which I thought that he died, and he's an Austrian Jew, and he came to the United States, and uh, he assembled a group, interdisciplinary group, uh, to study a topic, and it was extremely important experience in my education that I learned that you cannot look at problem within a particular discipline perspective, but you have to encompass it uh, uh, from various, various sides. And uh, this really what defines me. You know, I don't define myself as political psychologist, as a social psychologist, but as social scientist. And within this frame, I am looking at problems. So the problem is conflict. So I look at conflict from various, various perspectives, 
and uh, you know communication sociology political sciences education yeah. and obviously paul lazarsfeld is known for his contribution in the study of communications right. the two step right. theory that exactly. he wrote i think right. he published it with another uh professor who became israeli elihu katz uh, exactly uh, right and, uh, so you know yes yes <laughs> about I'm, i'm familiar i mean i'm i'm not a scholar myself but i i'm i'm a very proud student of scholars and so i read uh, lazarsfeld Uh, work over the years and I was greatly influenced by it and so what you're saying is very interesting you're saying let's forget about those subcategories and let us rem remember that we're all basically studying society so we're in the social studies field whether it's communications or conflict or anti-terrorism or international relations in the end of the day we all stem from the same source which is social social research right so Absolutely. tell us about uh, what got you interested in conflicts You know, so I, I am li living in a society with, uh, which is engulfed in conflict. And uh, for some time I was, you know, researching all uh, issues in education and uh, what is called pro-social behavior. And in the 80s, I suddenly decided that uh, I cannot live in a society without studying it, you know, being part of the society, uh, you know, serving in the army and being in the reserve, etc. And I decided to shift to conflict, to study conflict, you know, intractable conflict, conflict which last a lot of time and are uh, violent. Uh, and this is a definition and there are a number of conflicts in the world of this kind. And I decided to center on this particular type of conflict, which goes with Cyprus, which go, you know, went in Algeria, in North Ireland at that time it was, and Kashmir, and of course here is Now, very important. What is the role of our social and historical awareness in the way we perceive current conflict. So you are famous for coining the term the Masada complex, or at, right. least, or at least you right. used it. Siege mentality. Siege in mentality. Fact, I changed it. It's a concept from uh, Masada uh, mentality to uh, siege mentality. It's, uh, you know, uh, nations uh, don't live only on present, but they live on past. And the past very much imprints the perception of the present, uh, what we call collective memory. Collective memory is really a memory of the past relevant to the present. Otherwise, it's not important. So uh, certain societies uh, really have a feeling that all world is against them. You know, not only Israel has such a feeling after Holocaust and after 2,000 years of pogroms, uh, but also Albanians had and Serbian have a Polish have because of the particular history of, uh, you know, from geopolitical uh, uh, place, uh, they have a feeling that they are persecuted uh, and it impacts very much the present. So in the case of Israel, 
how would you characterize the impact our bloody, bitter history of persecution going back not only to the Inquisition, but even before that? Right, absolutely, um, even to ancient Israel. Or even to the ancient experience of, of the Israelites. How would you describe the main influence of our collective memory, how it impacts the way, the, the, the mentality of Israeli today, Israeli psyche today? Threat. Threat. Yeah, you know, we are living in exist under the existential threat, feeling of existential threat, which is that the uh, enemy is changing, you know, Egyptian, Persian, uh, Greek, uh, Roman, and then Christian world, uh, Germans, Arabs, and it's all continuation of the same really experience being threatened at uh, the very uh, really uh, present, you know. So, so, and you know, you look at this team, you know, very go well, you can see it in the speeches of Netanyahu. He is looking at the history, especially by in the influence of his father, who was studying, uh, of course, the expulsion of uh, Jews in from Spain in 1492, and he feels that it's today. You right, know, it right. it happens today. But he's not the only leader, of course. No, uh, right. You and know, I think I that just, the, the reason all the leaders, by the way. All the prime ministers, when you look at their speeches of Holocaust Day, the same theme is repeated. Right. Even Rabin talked about it. Of course. And I think the only exception was uh, Ben-Gurion, who was preoccupied with the future, not so much with the past. He was interested in the past, and he knew a lot about the past. He had, I thought, I think Ben-Gurion was, the more I read about him, the more I'm convinced that intellectually he was a giant. Um, way up there, a person that taught himself Greek, a person who taught himself Spanish, he was a giant intellectually, right up there with Einstein and Freud, uh, in my view. He's the only one who dared to predominantly talk about hope, about the future. Do you think that the siege mentality is the main reason why the conversation today in Israel is anchored in the past? Even when people try to depict the picture in, for the future, they still refer constantly to the past, you including know, it, the, 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 the visits of youth to the death camps in Poland right, and so on. Right. And by the way, Ben-Gurion also <laughs> noted that the experiences of the past are very important for the present. But don't leave Ben-Gurion. Yeah, because... You know, our world is shaped by mass media, by leaders, and what we believe in, it's really belief of the leaders. And because the leaders emphasize very much in the speeches, in ceremonies, in the literature you find it also, and the school books, of course, are very important, you know, this is what shapes the present of the nation. And in this presentation, you find really the echo 
of the past. Now, do you see any danger? In, because it seems like a very addictive thing to me to make constantly historical references. Uh, it's also the easiest thing. It's the easiest way out is to say, you know, what happened in the past is going to happen. In the, you know, there's a determinism attached to it. And so I think it's lazy on the part of the leaders. I think it's reckless. Do you see any danger yourself in yes, that? Yes, I, I do. I do. I mean, uh, because uh, I think that it is exaggerated. You know, uh, Israel is at the moment uh, power. I mean, I don't say superpower, but regional power with uh, weapon and, uh, you know, technologically developed, economically, and the remind all the time of the past is something that uh, shapes the uh, reality to the present generation. It's something without healing. So Holocaust, as we say, which is very much transferred to the generations through the strips and through various uh, mechanisms that still work, it's uh, exaggeration of the threat and as a result, you cannot act rationally. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because the first time I left Israel and I moved to the United States as a student, and uh, I spent a few years in the United States, this was before the internet, so I was disconnected from uh, Israeli media and Israeli news. My only source of information was phone calls with my family. Then I came back and I went to work for a, news, a newscast um, right here, not far from campus right here. It's called Erev Chadash. I don't know if you remember that show. Yeah, but... yeah, of course. And it dawned on me that Israeli mainstream media is the most militaristic media in the world. Absolutely. The number, Absolutely. The number of stories about yes, military yes, are, is mind-boggling. Yes, yes. You know, media, you know, look, uh, you know, the various events, you know, with Gaza or Lebanese war, you know, they are the one that really push, you know, the leadership uh, to continue usually against the ceasefire. And uh, this is a, a climate that is created uh, by the media. Yes, the media. It is, by the way, uh, not only you have a feeling, but it was investigated. And this was fine. It was empirically proven. Yeah, yes, empirically proved, absolutely. Because I, you know, I watched even, I was curious about what is it that the newspaper in North Korea write about? We have a tendency to imagine North Korea as the most tight, you know, military-oriented regime. It turns out that the newspaper in North Korea have less stories about military than Yediot Akronot, which leads the way in Israel with eight to ten stories about the military every day. Right, you know, uh, when any, uh, every event is taking place, a military event, who is invited? The generals, mostly, you know, as a kind of experts. And they talk, 
you know, in the way, militaristically. Right. They're and using the military jargon. Yeah, absolutely. To, to describe everything. And, absolutely. Uh, and it affects also everything. It affects management in Israel. It affects because they, ex-military, they go into business and they run companies and they usually drive them to the ground, but that's a different story. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but you see the impact across the board. Now, absolutely. Now, let me ask you, is there a way out of this? This Because you're describing something very disturbing to me as an Israeli. You're describing a vicious cycle, basically. Uh, we are being fed by the narrative of constant Absolutely. threat. Absolutely, yes. As a result, we become an insecure society, Absolutely. despite of the fact that we are very right. powerful. And this lack of self-awareness is deadly. But you know, uh, I have to say <laughs> something very important. You know, fear is robbing from rationality. And I must say that I feel that the leaders are interested in fearful society because fearful society is easily uh, managed, much especially on security matter. And if you find, if you think you know, security matters are the most important issues in the society. And the society is a rightist society. You know, 70, 60% of the uh, Israelis are uh, rightist. And uh, it really serves very much the leadership. Now, I think that's, that's pretty obvious. Uh, it happens in every society. Israel is not unique. Um, do you have any historical examples of societies? And I put, I set aside Germany and Japan post-World War II. They were both societies that went from being very militaristic to pacifist because of the circumstances of how the war ended and their and their acceptance of the of the crimes that they've committed, especially the Germans. Um, set aside the Germans and the Japanese. Do you see any example? of a society that was able to break this vicious cycle, the threat that leads to insecurity, that leads to, again, fearful society, as you describe it? It really depends on two factors. One is how long the kind of atmosphere or climate lasts. So when you talk about Germany and about uh, Japan, uh, it's relatively short time, but societies like France, you know, to some extent, Italian, they went out of the circle because it was for a short time, really, that they were uh, in this circle. So, this, uh, so you say the French society and the Italian society managed to break this vicious cycle. Spanish society also, after Franco. After Franco. So post-75, Spain embarked on a new path. Right. That was less militaristic, less fearful. Right. More optimistic, more about the future. And the country really did extremely well under the new strategy. Right, absolutely. And uh, which I, by the way, studied, because that's what I, I teach a class about nation brands and the case study of Spain, of Spain is one of the most incredible success stories of how a nation was able to completely improve its position over time. And what you're saying is that we should not lose hope <laughs> when it comes to you Israel. You know, especially when I see a present government, it's uh, in some way hopeless. 
Well, you, you know, know we are, but also I remember what uh, Israelis used to say about Ariel Sharon and what they used to say about Avigdor Lieberman even. And even Menachem Begin, before Menachem Begin was elected, and certainly I remember that as a teenager, after he was elected, there was people were very afraid of what he might do because he was viewed as a radical. Um, I must say that even the United States Department of State, in the days leading to the proclamation of the State of Israel, viewed Ben-Gurion as a radical. They thought Ben-Gurion was a radical. Uh, they knew Chaim Weizmann. Chaim Weizmann was the reasonable face of the Zionist movement. They didn't really know Ben-Gurion that well. And so it was easy for them to label him as a, as a, as a, as a radical. Certainly, Menachem Begin was viewed even by American Jews. I don't know if you remember that, but when he was elected, there was a great concern oh, absolutely true. among the true. leaders of American Jewry, and they expressed their concern. And, of course, Menachem Begin ended up being the prime minister that signed the peace deal right. with Egypt. So, And Ariel Sharon ended up pulling out of Gaza. Right, but you, and, you know, you have to know why. Right. <laughs> right, so it's, you know, saving Israel from... Uh, uh, ha uh, having Palestinians being a majority. But you know, I have to, you know, you have a very uh, good opinion of uh, Ben Gurion. And, uh, you know, in certain way, I agree with you, but you have to remember that he led the country in very autocratic way. Absolutely. So he was an autocrat you know, in fact, in my opinion, some of the basis of autocracies that we have is from the time of Ben-Gurion. Absolutely. You know, uh, by the way, the fact I think Ben-Gurion was a genius doesn't mean I think everything he did was right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. Yeah, so he was, you know, with regard to Arabs, with regard to opposition, with regard, you know, I just find found uh, that he was censoring uh, soldiers' letters. So he of personally asked that the letters will be open and will be censored. So, you know, people will, uh, soldiers will not tell, not secrets, but about, you know, kind of general climate. The, the morale. Morale, the morale of the right. soldiers. I remember when I was in the army during the first Lebanon war in the early 1980s, they used to do that to us also. So it wasn't, they continued until the right. 1980s. Right, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, some of the practices, you know, uh, really, he began. So let's talk about technology. How do you, what is the role? Because those little devices, those little devils, um, Give us an opportunity to learn about the world in a in a scope and manner that was inconceivable only 15 years ago. Does that gonna? Do you see any impact that those little devices are having on the on the siege mentality? Of course, you know because uh, what happened is that in the past we had media and you know more or less trying within particular frame and scope to provide news. But now what you have is anything can be news. So you have fake news and half fake news and everyone can enter and provide news. So it's complete mess, complete mess. Now you as a researcher who studied 
conflict in society, what would be, if you had the opportunity to sit in front of Mark Zuckerberg and let's say the CEO of Google and the CEO of Apple, what would you tell them? I will tell them that uh, the danger is fake news and uh, you have to control these uh, channels that they will not spread, uh, you know, animosity, prejudice, hostility, and... But I must present this question to you. What we're seeing today is something that, again, no one could, ant could have anticipated because of the rise of fake news. I call it the decentralization of media because on right, the periphery, You're right. Uh, a lot of things are happening. As a result, all of a sudden, you know, when I, when I came to New York as the consul in charge of media and public affairs, it was a few months before 9-11, New York Times was selling maybe one and a half million copies a day. They were not even the largest newspaper in America. US News, USA Today was number one with four and a half million and then I think the Wall Street Journal. And, um, and at one point, even the Daily News was selling more copies than the New York Times in New York. But New York, New York Times was one and a half million uh, copies, subscribers. I was one of them. And today, I'm told that they have 20 million subscribers on digital, which means that they are hugely profitable. And what does it tell us? It tells us that because of the rise of fake news, there is a huge attraction to mainstream media that is still being viewed as reliable and professional. So you see in Israel the rise of the digital subscriptions to mainstream media that is being viewed as reliable. I think in Israel there aren't too many news organizations that the public views as reliable, but they, they're doing better than they did 10 years ago. And of course in the, in the United States you have the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they're all doing extremely well because of the rise of fake news. Yeah, but at the same time, you have other channels and you have uh, the Trumpism, you know. So, uh, you know, many people, as you just described, try to get uh, something reliable. But at the same time, millions of people are listening to other channels that spread misinformation, uh, conspiracy theories, etc. And uh, you have, as a result, a very divided, divided and polarized societies. So it happens in many, many countries, in uh, Poland, in Israel, in United States, Brazil, you know, the same phenomenon. You know, Professor Bartal, uh, 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 our time is running up, unfortunately, but I have to ask you one, one last question before we, we depart. And obviously, I could talk to you for hours because, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. When people study the history of presidential campaigns in the United States mostly, but I think it applies also to Israel, they make a distinction between campaigns that are based on hope, mm -hmm. that are positive campaigns, and campaigns that are based on fear or the you know negative feelings like I'm being under uh, I'm underprivileged I'm uh, and so on which is uh, you you know if you want to make a Obama ran a, a hope campaign and Trump ran a fear campaign and there's a strong feeling 
in America that hope campaigns create an unreasonable level of promise. The bar is too high, like in the case of Obama, and the reaction to a failure of hope administration could be in the form of the you know of electing someone like Donald Trump, who's not even a politician. He's an entertainment brand who transitioned into politics and created this huge mess in American politics. So maybe that has something to do with the fear of politicians to present hope for the future. So it's not just the fact that, you know, Netanyahu was born as a son of a historian. It's not just about his own inner world, which is all about history and the past, but maybe he's reluctant to become the leader of the future because he understands that it's not uh, rewarding politically. You are right. You are right. Uh, fear works. Fear works because it is primary emotion. Very, runs very fast. It has a center, amygdala, you know, in the brain. And very quickly, you are overwhelmed by fear. Hope is cognitive. It requires planning. It requires uh, giving uh, goals. And uh, therefore, you know, the uh, elections are usually the one that use fear most of the time, you know. And even now in the United States, as you saw, uh, there was fear. Fear of what the Trump fellows will do. Right, right. And therefore, you know, it was uh, surprisingly uh, worked very well, but not surprising for psychologists that we was expected that those who were afraid, fearful uh, of the falling democracy voted uh, for uh, Democrats. Now, before we end, you, you just published a new book. What's the title of the book and where we can find it? And uh, I just published a book which is called Bezora Nochut. In the comfort zone. Uh, it's Stematsky and it came out in 2021. But edition of this book, Sinking in the Honey Trap, will be published in the United States. Okay, Sinking in the Honey Trap for our viewers is a book coming up by the legendary Daniel Bartal, who coined the term the siege mentality or the Masada complex. It was a pleasure having you here. I would like to have you again to continue this conversation. Thank you. Me too. You know very much. You are a fantastic interviewer. Thank you. Thank you, and see you again. This is Tau Unbound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.